All right, I want to start and get moving here this morning. We've been talking for the last few weeks on the topic of science and doctrine in the book of Job. We started out the first week by giving history of the book of Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, a survey of the book of Job, kind of a little outline of how the story goes. And then we talked about the fact that God has always given revelation to man. In the days before the Bible, the written word of God was completed, they still knew a lot. Part of that we know through the book of Job and the amazing things that are expressed. God had many different methods throughout history of speaking directly to people, directly to the prophets. He spoke through a donkey one time in various ways that we don't need now because we have the word of God completed. God spoke to people. He gave them light. Then the last couple of weeks, we looked at science expressed in the book of Job and other places of the Old Testament, amazing truths about the paths of the sea. And last week, we talked about the man who looked at the Bible in the 1800s and then decided, well, maybe I can chart the tides and the currents and the paths of the sea. And he was able, a naval officer, to chart it out well enough that they could save three weeks by following the paths that are in the sea. And he got that from the Bible, the Word of God, because Ecclesiastes 1.6 talks about wind patterns and other places in Psalms talks about the currents. And the book of Job talks about water and how it leaves, even though it's heavier than the air and goes through the air back into the clouds, holds in the clouds and then drops through in little water droplets. And then other places in the Bible, it says that the earth is a circle, even though back then they thought the earth was flat. The Bible said it was a circle. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And last week we talked about how when George Washington was sick and his throat was sore and he couldn't breathe, the doctors came and they took 40% of his blood and he died probably because of that. They had this idea, well, if they're sick, you got to take the bad blood out of them, but they didn't put any good blood back in like they do now. So he died. But if they had followed what the Bible said, the life is in the blood, they would have gotten it. So this morning, I want to back up. And before we get to the interesting chapter we're going to look at, we remember that all these things happen to Job. Job's three friends come and essentially accuse him of sin. In chapter 31, Job is sort of making his last final pitch to justify himself. He says in Job 31, he's not taken his neighbor's wife. He's not neglected the poor. He's not rejoiced at the destruction of people that hated him. He's saying to his friends, I have lived a life of integrity. It's not fair what you're accusing me of. Then Job 32 through 37, a man named Elihu, who is a younger man, begins to speak. And he speaks for five chapters straight. God corrected the three friends who spoke before, but God never corrects anything that this Elihu had to say. And though he seems harsh on Job at times, look what he says in verse 1, Job 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barako the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Also his three friends, also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. He comes across as harsh, but God lets him speak uninterrupted and God does not correct him. And he was angry for two reasons, because Job sought to justify himself rather than justifying God and his three friends accused him even though they did not have an answer. The next few verses, it says that he had waited until the other people were done speaking because they were older. And in verse five, he was angry against the three men because they had no answer either. In verse six, he begins to explain that he was young and that's why he waited 
to speak. Now, the reason I show you that is to point out as we turn now to Job 41, oh, Job 38 actually, is that Job did seek to justify himself rather than pointing to God as just. And in Job 38 verse 1, after five chapters of Elihu speaking, God then speaks and God corrects Job also, much along the lines of what Elihu does. Job 38 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Verse 7, referring there to the angels who praised God when he created the earth. So Job 38 through 41 begins all God speaking, Job silent, and God basically laying out his case. Job, if I created the world and you cannot answer how I did these mighty and marvelous things, why are you questioning me? Why are you not having faith? Why are you saying that I'm unfair? Why were you saying a few chapters ago you wished that you could plead with me as a lawyer and state your case and prove me wrong? And he goes on and on and on. As he said in verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He goes on and talks about the animals that he has created and the snow and the galaxies and the stars. We looked at that and talked about the stars and how it, it, it was accurate, the different Verse uh, 31 and 32, how that we know now in modern science, those constellation of stars, some of them are bound together as they travel. Some of them stretch out, and it's recorded in the book of Job accurately before we ever could have known that through science. Well, we come now to the chapter this morning of Job chapter 41, and it's as if God is using his closing pitch. The whole last chapter, he devotes 34 verses to one specific creature that he has created. After he talks about creating the earth, after he talks about the stars and the galaxies and the animals, he comes and spends a whole chapter talking about a beast that he has created. And again, the point of all this is to point to the glory, majesty, sovereignty, and knowledge of God and how we should not question God even when bad things happen to us. Verse 1 of Job 41, God says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook or his tongue? With a cord, which thou lettest down, canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Here God points to an animal he has created who he calls Leviathan. And he begins by saying, Job, can you go fishing and just catch this mighty beast named Leviathan? Can you get him with a spear the way that you would catch another fish? Now, what is this creature, Leviathan, that it is speaking to? I find it funny, some of the old commentaries will say it's probably a crocodile or a whale. But this is the definition given in the lexicon of the Hebrew word, Leviathan, meaning sea monster or dragon, a large aquatic animal, perhaps the extinct dinosaur, the exact meaning, the exact meaning unknown. It then says some think this croc, some think this to be a crocodile, but from the description in Job 41, this is patently absurd. Um, let's look to the book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 74. 
And we'll read two places in Psalms and then come right back to Job 41 and continue talking about this. Psalm 74 and verse 13. Speaking of God, it says, Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. One more in Psalm, Psalm 104, 26. Psalm 104, verse 26 Speaking, let's actually read verse 25 and 26. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships, there is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. What is Leviathan talking about in Job 41? It's speaking of a dinosaur that lived in the ocean. It's speaking of a massive sea creature, and its description is fascinating. We're reminded that dinosaurs are real, or they were real. They find fossils and evidence of dinosaurs all the time. One of, I think it was the third time I ever saw my wife, Melissa, we went to Glen Rose, Texas, to the Creation Science Museum, and then you go over to the state park where you can walk down in the rock and see the fossil prints of dinosaur hooves where they walked, right here in Texas. Um, but now, scientists will try to tell you that dinosaurs lived billions of years, and then man lived far after that. But rather, if we believe the Bible and creation account, we believe that man and dinosaurs existed at the same time. Let me read a little to you from Answers in Genesis, and I'm going to try to keep moving because I want to get through this this morning. Old Earth proponents often argue that if man and dinosaurs lived at the same time, their fossils should be found in the same layers. Biblical creationists believe that man and dinosaurs lived at the same time because God said that he created man and land animals on day six. The Bible states that two of every kind of land animal and seven of some went into the ark. Some skeptics say, how could two of every kind of dinosaur fit on the ark? If dinosaurs sailed on the ark, where are they today? When we read the description of Leviathan, you'll see he would not have had a problem surviving not on the ark, but perhaps some of the land ones were upon the ark. There are many references to historical evidence that suggests that dinosaurs and man live together upon the earth at the same time, such as the petroglyph in Natural Bridges, Utah, the legends and stories of dragons in Europe, and the use of the dragon motif by the Chinese. But one striking physical in Asia is the bas-relief picture of a dinosaur in the ruins of Angkor outside of Siem Reap in Cambodia. I googled both of those images as I read this and you can see in Utah where they had carved in the rock a picture of a dinosaur and then in Cambodia where they had a beautiful carving of a dinosaur. They lived together at the same time. The answer would seem to be that dinosaurs have since become distinct, as will, will happen to some extinct, thank you, as will happen to separate species sometimes. We know they existed, but then died out. It speaks here about the legends and stories of dragons in Europe, which to this day will persist in movies. What is the legend? What is the story? You have certain tropes that the story follows. You have the maiden in distress. You have the evil dragon. And who is the hero? the one that slays the dragon. If you could hunt and successfully kill one of these 
mighty, powerful beast, you would be a hero. So over time, throughout different factors, they no longer exist on the earth, but the Bible tells us they did exist back then. According to evolutionary time, crocodiles have been around since the time of dinosaurs, and yet we live together with them today. So why is it ridiculous to think humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time? Okay, Job 41. Let's go. We're going to move quick through this. We're halfway through the time we have. Verse number three, God continues. Job 41.3, his conversation with Job. Remember, the point of it is to demand of him an answer and how Job is not smarter than God. And he points to this magnificent beast that he has created as evidence of the fact that he is God and Job should trust him because he created something so amazing. Verse three, will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee or wilt thou take him as a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? He's saying, Job, this is not some pet you can keep as a dog or a cat, but it's a great and terrible beast who you're afraid to even go near. Verse six, shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears. Here again, it speaks the irons, the barbed irons would be a pointed weapon that you would use in fishing as you would harpoon a bigger creature. But he's saying there's no way that that's going to work for this beast. Verse eight says, lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Best I can tell from reading all the commentaries, this verse is saying, if you were able to come close enough to this dinosaur and lay your hand upon his nose, the next thing you should do is when it says remember the battle is remember the chaos that will ensue if you actually tried to subdue this beast and do no more. Withdraw, save your own life. Verse nine, behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? Here they seem to think it indicates that it's saying the hope of conquering him or defeating him is vain. And you will do much better to just go away. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of this beast? Your courage would leave you. Your knees would tremble and you would flee. Verse 10, Job 41, 10. None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Remember God saying, I made this creature. And if you're so afraid of this one beast that I created, who then is able to stand before God who made and commands this living creature and all living creatures? Verse 11, who hath prevented me that I should repay him? In other words, who came before me, God says, in whose debt am I? No one's. Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. All creation is God's. Yes, the devil is the prince of the power of the air, but the Bible says this is as the song says, this is my father's world. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And Satan may be on lease to run wild for a while, but it belongs to God and it obeys him. Even the animals in the weather. Verse 12, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Speaking of how majestic this beast is. Verse 13, who can discover the face of his garment or who can come to him with his double bridle? His garment being the outer covering. When it says who can come to him with a double bridle, it's saying who will go and try to put a bridle in the mouth of this beast as you would a sword. Verse 14 of Job 41. Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. I always think of 
the movie from my childhood, The Fox and the Hound, and where they're looking at the one bad dog, and they open and they see his big teeth, and he says, that's the part you got to worry about, the teeth that talks about of this thing. You wouldn't want to get caught in his jaws. Verse 15 says, his scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. He has a natural chain link armor. It's the scales that go around him. We see scales on reptiles and on fish, and it protects them from minor scratches and cuts. The same way that a coat of armor would protect a warrior, it moves, and it's possible for something to get in there, but it gives protection. And that's what the mighty scales, the skin of this beast, did for him. Verse 17, they are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. Verse 18, very interesting. By his kneesings, a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Let's read the rest of this description, and we'll talk about it. Verse 19, out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. Here we learn in these verses 18 through 21 that the word of God says that this Leviathan, this dinosaur creature, was a fire-breathing dragon. The word kneesings in verse 18 is simply an old word that means to sneeze. And the Bible says when the beast sneezes, a light shines. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning, like a flaming sun. And then it talks about the burning lamps going out of his mouth and sparks of fire leaping out of his mouth, smoke coming out of his nostrils as you would have in a boiling pot. And his breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out of his mouth. Verse 21. Now, in the commentary of what the Hebrew word meant, it says that to think this is a crocodile would be absurd. And then it says it appears to be a large fire-breathing animal of some sort. Just as the bombardier beetle has an explosion-producing mechanism, so the great sea dragon may have an explosive-producing mechanism to enable it to be a real fire-breathing dragon. God's creation is amazing, and it makes the idea of evolu evolution so absurd that you'd have to have so much blind, foolish faith in evolution to believe that this complex creation could have come about by accident. Listen to this. Bombardier beetles are ground beetles in the tribes of, and it gives places I've never heard of, more than five, or maybe species, more than 500 species altogether which are the most notable for the defense mechanism that gives them their name. When disturbed, this beetle will eject a hot, noxious chemical spray from the tip of the abdomen with a popping sound. The spray is produced from a reaction between two chemical compounds. Hydro... I, when I see a word I don't know how to pronounce, I like try really hard and then I just spit it out and it sounds bad. But it's hydro and then Q-U-I-N-O-N-E and hydrogen peroxide, which are stored in two reservoirs in the beetle's stomach. When the solutions come together and meet, it facilitates the decomposition of the hydrogen peroxide and the ox oxidation of the hydro, 
hydroquinine. That sounds good to me. Heat, heat from this chemical reaction brings the mixture to near the boiling point of water and produces gas that drives the ejection. The damage caused can be fatal to attacking insects. Some bombardier beetles can direct the spray in a wide range of directions. This beetle's unusual defense mechanism is claimed by some creationists to be an example of what they call irreducible complexity. The argument is that of irreducible complexity is that certain biological systems cannot have evolved by successive small modifications to pre-existing functional systems through natural selection because no less complex system could even function. And it has become central to the argument of intelligent design. In other words, it's stupid to think that this beetle over millions of years slowly developed this. It was designed to have a defense mechanism. And what it does is from inside a little beetle, these chemical reactions happens in its stomach that brings the gas that it shoots out at its predators to near the boiling point of water. It generates heat. And evidently there was within this Leviathan the capability to, like Godzilla, breathe fire out of its mouth to destroy. Let's continue on. Verse 22, it says, In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. In other words, it's sort of saying the sorrow dances around and chaos is caused by where he goes. Verse 23, The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. Here again, speaking as lizards will have scales and plates that amount to body armor for their protection. Verse 24, his heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone, which nether means lower. His heart is hard. It's not afraid. Verse 25, when he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid by reason of breakings, they purify themselves. Again, it's a fascinating chapter, but the old English is, it just gives you pause every verse to say, what exactly does it mean? Evidently, when it says breakings, it's causing to the destruction that this beast causes. Everything's breaking around him. And when it says they purify themselves, the Hebrew word here means to miss, to mark, to miss the mark, to sin, to err. It's describing that they are gripped by terror. They are beside themselves. One commentator says to purify themselves that perhaps it is saying as those who are unclean and know that they have to run away from others because they have leprosy and they frantically remove themselves. The word means to purify from uncleanness, to lose oneself. So it's a literal translation of the word, but the indication apparently is missing moving. So it says by reason of all the things that are breaking and the chaos that the dinosaur causes, the people scatter, the creatures run away. Verse 26, the sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergon. The habergon is a coat of mail, of chain armor. But it's saying if you were to come at him with a sword, a spear, or a dart, it would do no good at all. It wouldn't even pierce the skin that defends this mighty beast. Verse 27, he esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. What a strong animal this describes. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingstones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. 
sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. Again, he causes destruction. He's not afraid of anything. And remember, what is the context and the point of all this? God takes a whole chapter and four whole chapters to say, Job, if I created these things by a whim, by the spoken word of my mouth, then don't come to me and think that you know better than I do. Humble yourself. Stand before me. And that's exactly what Job does in the following chapter. And then God turns his captivity around. Verse 30, sharp stones are under him. We read that. Verse 31, he maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. Again, he generates heat and the ocean begins to have bubbles come up as a boiling pot would. Verse 32, he maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. That word hoary means gray or white hair. So as he goes through the sea and generates heat and fire, it boils and you can see light around the path of where he goes. Upon earth there is not his like who is made without fear. Verse 34, an interesting verse. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. What does that make you think of? When you think of a king of the children of pride, it makes us think of the devil. Remember the devil's sin was pride in heaven. He said, I shall be as the most high. I will be worshiped like God. And when we fall into the sin of pride, we fall into the devil's sin. One place to turn, Isaiah chapter 26. So what was this describing? Was that describing the devil himself? No, here's what it was describing. It was describing an actual, literal, historical creature that the devil is sometimes called, as the devil is sometimes called a serpent. I'll read you this verse, Revelation 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the great key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the, does anyone remember what the next word is? Before it says old serpent, it says, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years. A serpent is an actual animal that the devil appeared to Eve in the form of. And throughout the Bible, it will say serpent when it's speaking of the devil. The serpent was real. So too, in Revelation 20, it calls the devil a dragon because it likens him in his pride and his destruction not only to the destruction of a roaring lion, but also to the destruction of a fire-breathing dragon. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 15, I think you'll see if you read along much of here in Isaiah, it's talking about the millennial reign. It's talking about end times and how God's going to come and make the earth his own. Verse 15, thou hast increased the nation, O Lord, thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far unto all the ends of the earth. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draweth near, the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs. So have we been in thy sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. We talked in our study of Daniel and his 70-week prophecy 
how the nation of Israel will be persecuted throughout the end of times and how often the last days in their prophecies are compared to a woman in childbirth when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as a woman with child. In Jeremiah, it describes the time of Jacob's trouble, which is Israel, as if even the men were bent over with their hands on their knees about to go into labor. Verse 19, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Again, speaking here to the time in the end, when all shall rise, some to glory and some to judgment. Verse 20, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. What does verse 22 speak of? A time when God comes out of his place to punish all the inhabitants of the earth for their sin. Verse 20 has been thought of perhaps as the rapture, which I believe is a description of how God's people will be hid until the indignation is overturned. But remember, the Jewish people also will run into the wilderness and will be protected of God and shielded from the destruction for three and a half years. Chapter 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. What does this speak of? Does it speak to this animal still out there and God's going to punish it when he shows up? What it's saying in verse 27, verse 1, I believe, is it speaking of the devil himself, who he likens unto a crooked serpent, but he also likens unto Leviathan, the dragon that lives in the sea. The actual historical creature that lived within the days of Job and that God used as an example to say, you run in terror from this beast, but I created him and at a word I could destroy him. So too, when Christ comes to this earth to establish his reign, the devil, Leviathan, the serpent, the dragon, God will subdue like that the crooked serpent who punished Job so much and went after him and attacked him and took everything that he had. God will subdue Satan and this earth will be his. And Job himself proclaimed at one point, I know that my Redeemer liveth and shall stand upon the earth in the latter day. And though my body has been destroyed with worms, yet in my flesh shall I see God and praise him. And as Job was brought to the place of humility to remember the awe, creation and power of God and to surrender to his sovereignty, may all of us do the same, knowing that he is God, knowing that he's good, knowing that whatever he's putting us through at the moment, he has a reason for. And we can trust him. And we should not question or argue with this powerful God who not only created these things, but has all authority over them with simply the word that comes out of his mouth and over Satan, our accuser as well. Heavenly Father, bless the thoughts from the scripture this morning. I pray that you would be with the service and the time of fellowship that follows church today. May we worship you and magnify you with all of our being. May we lift up our hands and our hearts and our souls and surrender and say, surely you are God. 
let us not question you, but rather surrender to follow your way. May your blessing be upon the church service that will begin in a few moments. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.